Amen. You may be seated. We can turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9, we're looking at verses 7 through 15 this morning. There's somewhat of a, of a challenge that we face when we come to passages like this, right? because we, we want to learn about giving God praise. We want to understand how to pray God, to God, how to glorify him, and in this particular element of worship, in, in the way in which we come before him in prayer, it's the words we use. Uh, the thoughts that we have, the passages of scripture that might come to mind. And sometimes when we break down sort of a a passage like this that gives us an example of a a biblical prayer, do this with the Psalms as well, as you're analyzing it, you begin to think about prayer, but neglect to actually pray. Sort of like talking about worship, but not actually worshiping, right? It's a, it's a concern, right? There's a, there's a risk there in that sense, but it's good to understand. It's good to know. It's good to understand the different categories of prayer. What, is, what make up, what are the aspects that make up adoration? Like, what, what does that look like? What does that sound like? What are the words of adoration? What does confession and repentance sound like? Uh, what does Thanksgiving look like? We want these examples, and it's helpful. And as, as I'm working through it, you might know that I'm kind of giving you the uh, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, the acronym for ACTS. And that's a, a model that can help us to pray. And they're good models. Um, but I bet as, as, we're, as you're sitting here thinking about what you would want most from this sermon... You're not necessarily looking for a, a, new, a new formula, a new format. You simply want to engage in more vibrant prayer. You recognize the need for prayer. And maybe you feel a conviction for a lack of prayer. And so f- simply analyzing and understanding the models aren't necessarily going to change that. Really, if you intend to pray more, you have to stop relying upon yourself. You have to become less self-reliant or others-reliant or anything but God-reliant, which oftentimes characterizes our lives. Right? What happens, we, we, we think we can handle everything that's going to come at us during the day, and then we show up here, week after week, overwhelmed by our lives once again, needing to be refreshed, needing to be encouraged. Now, that's the pattern that God has expected of the believer. So I'm not suggesting that you're unique or that if you had a vibrant prayer life, all of a sudden, all of those problems just go away and you don't deal with them. But when you recognize your need for God, it does become much easier to turn to him in earnest prayer. And so that's how the Israelites had gathered. They had gathered together on this day that wasn't marked on the calendar. 
There wasn't an event for them to attend, but they all decided let's gather together for solemn repentance, for corporate repentance, because we're burdened by what's taking place in our community. We've become obsessed with the word of God in a good way. It's become our passion. We want to hear it. We want to study it. We want to read it together and privately and in our families. And they've been doing so, and it's been affecting them. It's been affecting their hearts, and they're moved now to come to God and repent. Once they understood God's will and his word, they sought to align their hearts with it. And this is where we get to something that might be unexpected. Right? That We know that the Levites are leading them from verses 4 and 5. You have a list of Levites who are, are leading them in this corporate prayer. So the people are probably agreeing with one or several indi- individuals of, uh, among the Levites who are saying this prayer out loud. But they start, they've come with this burden to repent, but where do they start their prayer? With praise. Instead of beginning with the confession of sin, they start with their profession of faith. It's interesting because if I've offended you, the first thing I think of when I go to you is to say I'm sorry, right? I'm going to just launch right into that. But they establish their relationship with God. They remind God of what he has done for them, how he has called them, and what he, how he has, who he is as God, right? They, they've worshipped him as creator. They've acknowledged that his name is eternal above all names. That he has created the earth and everything on it, the sea and everything in it, the heavens and the hosts that worship him. He's made it all. They acknowledge that. And now they want to review a bit of their history with God, how God has called them to himself. This is not a strategy to endear God to them, as if they're trying to butter him up or prepare him for their confession, right? They have a proper understanding of God and they recognize that in order to truly repent they it's crucial that they understand who God is and that includes an apprehension of the mercy that he has shown to them the mercy that he holds out to them because sin will lead to an unrelenting guilt for those who do not join their confession of sin with a profession of faith if you don't see them as going together, then you will only feel and sense the guilt until you enter into the grave. And so a right understanding of God prepares us for true repentance. And that's why Israel began their corporate confession with corporate adoration. They want to understand or they want to relate to God on his terms to recognize who he is as he's revealed himself. And so their adoration, their praise of God, involves not only who he is, as we've seen in verses 5 and 6, but also what he's done, as we'll see in our passage this morning. So let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it before we read it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you 
delight to listen to your children praying. Lord, we want to reflect back upon when we were first enthralled by the beauty of Christ. We want to think about what it was that attracted us to you. That gave us a desire to humble ourselves before you, to recognize your sovereign majesty and glory. And to know that that did not come naturally. And that we didn't just put together the right formula to figure it out. But that your spirit moved us. And that you revealed yourself to us and drew us to yourself. May that reflection be near to our, our, at the forefront of our minds now. As we consider the, this prayer of the Israelites in their, in their corporate confession of sin. Oh Lord, help us to apply it to our own lives and to use it in our own prayer life. That we wouldn't just analyze this prayer as some model, but that it would lead us in prayer. That it would take us to your throne of grace. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm going to go back a few verses just to get us to where the, begin, the beginning of the prayer is. Verse 5, and we'll read down to verse 15. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up. And bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You've made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of your fathers in Egypt and heard their, of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments 
and you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, in this first section, or, or I, we don't really have sections from this, I just want to point out two things. And so your first point in your outline is that we are to praise God for his sovereign work of salvation. Uh, this section traces the Israelite wandering in the wilderness, that generation as they wandered. The Levites will will get to, this prayer will get to the failures of that generation in the next section. But here, right, the, the focus in verses 7 through 15 is fully upon God's kind providence. He remains the subject of every sentence that we just read. God remains the subject. God is the one who is the focus not the people. So something else that, that we can note here is that the structure of this larger section, uh, which concludes in chapter 10, is, is not unique to Israel. It's actually something that was a pattern of covenant treaties among the ancient Near Eastern people. And so they were familiar with this kind of treaty language that would have began with a, with a preamble, establishing the parties, and then entering into a historical prologue, referencing the stipulations of the agreement, uh, talking about the, the curses and, and, and blessings of obedience or disobedience to that covenant. So this idea of covenant language is beginning here in, in chapter 9, and it carries on through the end of chapter 10. It's it's a pattern that would have been familiar to them, even those Israelites who had abandoned their faith and are now repenting and coming back to the one true God. They would have seen the parallels. And so what's interesting is that while there are parallels, there is, is a significant difference. We've talked about this before, right? Scripture is polemical. It's reacting in a countercultural way to what the, how the world sees reality. And so there's a significant difference between the way in which covenants were ratified. Uh, one of the clearest pictures of this and of God's sovereignty in salvation comes to us in Genesis 15. If you've been here for a few years, you've heard me talk about this passage. God selected a man who was no different from any other man among a nation that was like every other nation. And he called Abram and promised to make him a great nation and to bless him so that he might be a blessing to the other nations. That promise begins in Genesis 12. It's ratified in Genesis 15. Here's the problem. As the promise is given to Abram, Abram was 75 years old. And in his old age, he's married to someone who's past childbearing years, Sarah, well past childbearing years, and they don't have any children. 
God says, you're going to be a nation, a great nation, and you're going to be such a great nation that you're going to bless other nations. And it's the most unlikely individual you could choose to give that promise to. It would seem. Abram, though, was faithful to go. He leaves. And he listens to the word of God. And at some point, several years later, he gets to Genesis 15, and God ratifies this covenant. And Abram is, is still wondering here. I, I, I've, I've heard the promises. In fact, at the beginning of 15, God reiterates those promises to him. And he says, but I'm still childless. And God says, you'll have a child. In fact, look at the stars. Try to count them. I'm going to make you a nation that is that big. Innumerable. The crux of Genesis 15, and if you want, go ahead and turn there with me. The crux of the chapter, in my opinion, is what happens after this. God promises, he, he reminds him, I'm giving you this land. And Abram says, how will I know that I'll possess it? So he said, how are you making me into a nation? I'm still childless. He says, number the stars. He says, how will I know you'll give me this land? And this is what he then does in verse 9. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them all, he brought them all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Okay, so God asks him to bring a heifer, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon to cut them in half and to lay them, set them up, um, side by side or across from one another. So one half's over here, another half's on this side. And you do that with the three animals and then the birds. I, I'm, I'm assuming one bird was on one side and one bird was on the other, but they're not cut in half, probably because he would have hacked them into multiple parts instead of just half if he tried to do that. So... This is a bloody mess. There's a, an aisle of blood. That's the intent. That's the point, is to have this blood. Now, I mentioned that this, this context, this structure of this passage, um, or of the passage in Nehemiah, is, is following a, a typical treaty covenant, or a covenant treaty, ancient Near East. Well, this ceremony that is taking place is is similar to the suzerain vassal treaty. Right? So when a conquering king, the suzerain king, uh, conquers a nation, he takes the vassal or the servant king, and they both, they take animals, divide them, and create this aisle, just like this, and then both kings walk down the aisle. The idea that they're saying is, is if you or I, either one of us, break our covenant vows, let it be done to us what's done to these animals. 
So it's a very vivid display of the penalty and punishment that would fall upon them for breaking their vows. So get back to this, this passage. What does he do? So Abram has, has separated the animals. He's created this aisle. He's familiar. He's, he's ready, in fact. He's thinking he's about to walk through this, these aisles. And what does God say? As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Now, that deep sleep isn't just a nap. That's the same sleep that Adam experienced as he was getting the, what is it called, the um, costectomy, I looked it up. The removal of a rib. When, he, when that surgery was taking place, he was in a deep sleep. You have a similar deep sleep that's placed upon Saul and his men as David and Abishai enter into the, his presence and, and Abishai wants to, to, to kill Saul put an end to the threat that he's been, as he's been chasing David. And David says, don't lay a hand on the anointed, well, on the Lord's anointed. But he does take a spear, and he takes his water, takes Saul's spear and water. All of that took place while the men were in a deep sleep that the Lord had placed upon them. So the idea here is that Abram is, is out cold. He's not like stirring and kind of half paying attention. He is, he is out. And then we read. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain. He's speaking to Abram. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So again now, he's giving him promises about his future. And then verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, Behold, a smoking firepot and flaming torch passed between those pieces, or these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. All right, so... He has put him to sleep. He has passed now his presence. Throughout scripture, you find the presence of God depicted by a cloud. In fact, we'll see it here in the prayer later on, the pillar of smoke, the cloud and, uh, of fire that led them during the wilderness wandering. Here you have this fire, a torch of fire, and a smoking pot wa- um, passing through these animals that have been divided while Abram is in a deep sleep. See, God reveals himself to be both the covenant maker and keeper. He establishes the covenant, and then he commits to taking the curses of that covenant upon himself. See, some, some wonder how an infant could enter into a covenant with God. It's no more unlikely than God making a covenant with a man who's in a coma. God establishes his covenant with the whole family, and 
I was reading this this week, and it, it struck me as relevant. I just want to, want to read it. Deuteronomy 29, verses 10 through 13. <clears throat> as they're the people of Israel, uh, in fact, this wilderness generation is renewing the covenant with the Lord before, um, before they pass on the responsibilities to Joshua. You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water. In other words, everyone. Everyone in the community. They're all there. They're all standing before the Lord. In verse 12, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today that he may establish you today as his people and that he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It's not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord your God and with whoever is not here with us today. A reference to Gentiles entering into that covenant later in Acts 2.39. We'll reference back to that promise. So God is sovereign in electing his covenant people, and he elects an entire community for himself. There's two additional examples of his sovereignty in salvation. One is the way he deals with Pharaoh. We know that God hardened his heart toward the Israelites, uh, that, that he hardened the heart of Pharaoh toward the Israelites, and he's continuing to, he continued to send the plagues upon him and upon the Egyptians, and it was only harming the Egyptians, in fact. God was doing so to make a name for himself. He was revealing his sovereign power. That's what they say there in verse uh, 9. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land that you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. He made a name for himself as one who is mightier than Egypt. That all the nations would know of this sovereign God. And it's interesting, as you continue on, there's several sentences of this historical prologue. There's no mention of Moses until later on, but all this is happening under the leadership of Moses. But again, God is the subject, and he, they are praising him, and they're focused on him, and it's what God gave. So it doesn't mention Moses. He's simply the vessel through whom God accomplished his will. Until verse 14, it does mention the law that was given by Moses, your servant. Another unlikely individual having difficulty speaking, not, a one, who, not, not one who had leadership training. And so do you reflect upon the history of salvation in your own life, in your own family? Do you express your gratitude to the God who orchestrated it all? Do we oftentimes appreciate the period, like specific periods of history, even in church history? Right? We really highlight oftentimes the Reformation. It's an important time. 
Right? We highlight it for good reason, but I would encourage you to think before that. Think after that. Because God is at work in every age, and he has grafted us into this same family, according to Romans eleven seventeen. And so the history of Israel that we're reading about here is our history. It's the history of the church. Keeping the people of God in, in two distinct categories not only prevents unity, but it, it might even cause you to have a misplaced understanding of the promises that God has given. We might begin to think that entire books of the Bible don't really speak to our situation. On the other hand, when we recognize the continuity between the covenant people of God in the Old and New Testament, we have a greater appreciation for all of redemptive history. And that appreciation leads us into a fuller sense of praise, which is what we're after, to honor and glorify God rightly. And so if our aim indeed is to glorify God, then recalling God's work through Abram and Moses with personal interest facilitates that end. And Paul establishes the continuity between the Old and New Covenants in one sentence, 2 Corinthians 1.20. He writes regarding Jesus, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. All the promises of God find their yes in him. That means when you're reading any promise from the Old Testament, it found its fulfillment in Christ. And if you're united to Christ, then the blessings that Christ has purchased on the cross for you belong to you. Christ has fulfilled every promise given to the church, and all who are united to him become the beneficiaries of those same promises so that we have every blessing in Christ Jesus, as Ephesians 1.3 says. So do you know that Abraham and Moses are the only two individuals mentioned in the Old Testament or referred to as being friends of God? 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7, and Exodus 33, 11. They're the only two. They're mentioned here again. We know that in the New Testament, Christ called his disciples friends. John 15, 13 through 16. And he shows his great love for his friends by laying down his life for them. In other words, Jesus takes the covenant curses upon himself. He's the fulfillment of what we saw illustrated in Genesis 15. Jesus is the one who said, let it be done to me what was done to these animals. If you or I break that covenant. And we know Jesus had no sin. He took the curse upon himself on our behalf. And we were as much help as Abram was, dead in his sleep. So only Christ can establish your union with him and the union that we enjoy with all his people now and for all eternity. God not only saves us, but he preserves us, and we'll be brief here. The second point is that to praise God for his sovereign work of preservation. 
The Levites recount several aspects of, of God's preservation in the wilderness generation. It's described as God seeing their affliction and hearing their cry. They know this to be true now, but in that generation, that was the very thing they were doubting. So we will see how, how quickly they turn to grumbling and disobedience in the next passage. But again, this emphasizes God's compassion upon them. By rescuing the Israelites out of the arrogant hands of Pharaoh, God made a name for himself among the nations. Those who feared the might of the Egyptians now understood that God was even mightier. And instead of marching the Israelites through Philistine territory where they would have immediately entered into war, God took them to the Red Sea. And as Israel fled, they saw Pharaoh's army charging after them. And they complained that Moses brought them out into the wilderness to die. He says, were, not, were there not graves in Egypt? It appeared to the people that God had set them up. God's leading them by this pillar of cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night. He's already leading them. They know that they're where God has led them. But they see no way out. The army is... is, is charging against them and they have a, a giant sea in front of them and they're surrounded now honestly they had just come out of seeing 10 plagues that all fell upon egypt and never harmed them and so it's fairly short-sighted to question whether god could save them at this point god protects his people right he does not sabotage them but God portrayed his presence with that pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. He instructed Moses to set up camp at the edge of the sea. Give the impression to Pharaoh and his army that they're stopping there. They're going to be there for a while. And then as they see that taking place, the, the pillar of cloud repositions itself between Moses and the Israelites and Pharaoh and the army. And while... They're continuing to charge after them. Moses is instructed to part the Red Sea and for them to pass over on dry land. And as Pharaoh continues to charge his army in, God instructs Moses to hold out his staff again and let the waters enclose over them. There was no battle. No Israelite lifted a finger. They might as well have been asleep. God fought for them just as he promised he would. And he preserved them. Throughout this chapter, another key word is, is give. It occurs 15 times, several times in this passage. God gave the law. He gave them bread from heaven. He, gave, he brought them water from the rock. So we'll continue to see God's gracious provision God has compassion upon the afflicted. In, uh, in our opening, our call to worship, we've been using this for a while now, but it says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. That's a promise you find 
in Isaiah. It's a promise you find in Nehemiah. It's a promise you find throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. God is gracious and compassionate to the afflicted. Raymond Brown says, suffering is never a lonely visitor to the human life. The Christian soon becomes aware of immense resources which accompany every experience of hardship. Our worst afflictions become the expositors of grace. As Samuel Rutherford said, we learn that grace grows best in winter. And so it's in the midst of our suffering that God shows us routinely his saving strength. We grumble and complain and we might even accuse God of abandoning us, abandoning us when we're going through that affliction. And maybe like the Israelites, we start to question whether he's brought us into a trap. Maybe you're going through a time where you've, you've wandered away from the faith. And it's a serious matter of concern within the covenant community. And we saw in Hebrews 3 a warning about that. You see it again in Hebrews 6. You cannot easily dismiss those warning passages as not having to do with the covenant community. They're given to the covenant community throughout Scripture. The Israelites in the wilderness had tasted the heavenly gift of manna. They had shared in the guidance of the Holy Spirit. They even heard the word of God from the mouth of Moses who received it directly from God on Mount Sinai. Unfortunately, they took their privilege for granted, and as Hebrews 3 said, most of them were un died in unbelief. It's a warning for the covenant community. We must know God rightly. We must worship and honor him. We must recognize our need for him. We must know that Christ is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Christ is the spiritual food that came down from heaven. Christ is the spiritual drink that flowed from the spiritual rock. Christ has made everyone who believes children of Abraham, who receive the same promises as heirs of the same covenant of grace, as Paul says in Galatians 3. Only Christ can satisfy the righteous requirements of the covenant and take upon himself the curses of our disobedience, and it's only by faith in him that we have the privilege to praise God rightly. So let us do so now. Heavenly Father, we thank you because that's the only appropriate response to your sovereign will to save us, to elect us to, to know you rightly and to reveal to us your beauty and truth, to enable us to understand the gospel and to receive it. Lord, help us to never tire, to grow bored of considering these things. Lord, to, to recognize the, the breadth of redemptive history, that we would become like the Israelites are in Nehemiah 9, obsessed with your word. 
Not because we simply want our knowledge, we simply want our understanding, but because we know that that knowledge will lead us into praise, into adoration, into true repentance as we recognize and apprehend your grace and mercy held out to us and as we feel our guilt and shame and as we know when we confess that to you you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness may we do so even now in our song of response and as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the lord's supper together may we commune with you and all that that means spiritually lord we would recognize Christ is spiritually present with us. The one who has paved the way for us to come. Who enables us to come and then ensures that we stay. That we persevere. Lord, we're grateful. We want to express that now in our worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response, Lead On, O King Eternal, hymn number 544.